1: Jones, a member here at Redeemer, and I made a promise to our pastor, Pastor Shannon, that someday I was going to give a testament of the power of God, of the hope of our God, of the healing of our God. And I'm here to do that now because so many of you are part of it. Some of you know my story, little bits by little bits but I'm going to tell it, and I'm going to praise God. 2018, July 31st. Man, I was on high. I had just spent three months in England with my daughter and family. Came back to another visit with my son from Virginia. I was feeling good. I took a walk in the evening just to talk to God and praise him and thank you. That very night I woke up with excruciating pain, pain like I have never experienced before. And I know what pain is. It was in every joint and every portion of my body. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how to stop it. We began going to the doctors. They were trying to figure out what it was. Tests, x-rays, all kinds of things. Finally, I went to a rheumatologist and she said, I think it's RA, rheumatoid arthritis. So for nine months, we tried to treat it. For nine months, it was failure after failure with every drug that they tried. And I'm thinking, What's, what am I gonna do? Well, I was a little surprised because fast forward nine months later, Mother's Day 2019, I give myself an injection, Of one of the biologics that they were treating me with and something goes crazy and something's not right and a voice in my head is saying get to the ER. So Charles gets me to the ER. It's a huge frenzy when I get there. I don't know what's going on. All I know is I'm in pain. I don't, I'm confused. I can't breathe. Something's not right. They then decide, "Uh uh-uh, this is too much. We're sending her to the big hospital in Dallas. So another big frenzy, getting me in the ambulance, getting me there, and my husband following behind. We get to the hospital in Dallas. We realize this is pretty serious. I have sepsis, I have pneumonia, and I've had a heart attack. My life changed. I can't even snap, but it changed like that in a minute. I could see my daughter and my husband look like two deer that were in the headlights of a car, like, oh my goodness. It was crazy. But you know, let me tell you what happens. I didn't leave the hospital until the end of May. That voice in my head would speak to me four more times, telling me, get to the ER. Each time, the ER staff would tell me, you know, it's a good thing you came in because you wouldn't have made it. From May through September, I was mostly in the hospital. I kept getting worse, and they kept adding to my diagnosis. Now I had fluid on my lungs, I had water around my heart, I had so many blood clots they were not sure I was even going to make it. I had acute anemia, a genetic blood disorder. It just kept piling on and piling on. Because of the large doses of steroids, I developed diabetes and now I was dependent on multiple injections of insulin every day. The pain was so great. I was so tired. I was so weak. Did God show up for all this? No, because he was already there. (laughs) I was in the palm of his hand from the very beginning. Psalm 73, 28 says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. And I'm going to tell you, God saved my life five times. He took care of us financially when Charles had to quit his job to be a full-time caregiver. Even the home health agency that came to provide services was called Agape Health Services. (laughs) Agape, God's love! I mean, wow, that was pretty cool. I didn't think of it till much later, but oh, yeah. By 2020, when it started, I had lost 60 pounds. I'm vomiting every week, 8 to 10 hours at a time. I now have what they call a jackhammer esophagus. It spasms so bad it makes me jump, and, and a big "uh" comes out of me. I can't control it. It's almost comical, but it, but it wasn't. <laughs> it's difficult to swallow, so it's difficult to eat. It's difficult to take the medications I need to take. And now I'm on oxygen permanently, the doctor says, for the rest of your life. And then COVID shows up. My pulmonologist looks at me and goes, you know, I wish I could just wrap you up in bubble wrap and stick you in the closet until this thing's over. But I can't. But until then, you know, I was already isolated. But he said, even more so, only your family and the doctors. And that's all I saw. Is God working? Yes, he is. He leads me to a new rheumatologist who diagnoses me with lupus. It's an autoimmune disease that attacks soft tissue, the joints, the lungs, the brain, the skin, the kidneys, and other things. There's no cure. And this doctor, though, specializes in lupus. Isn't that cool? But we began a new round of drugs, which causes me to lose my hair twice. That wasn't fun. And I needed a new bed because I was so sensitive to pain, just a cover moving over me would hurt. I needed to be at a 45-degree angle to sleep because my lungs were so damaged. And God provided $5,000 to buy me a bed. You know, so that was God working. That was awesome. Now we get to 2021. I'm thinking, shouldn't this be done by now? But I'm getting worse instead of better. The pain level's unbearable. I'm seeing six specialists by this time. I'm really beginning to think, maybe God's going to take me home. And I should be responsible and get ready for that. So I asked my sister, come on over, and I'm going to show you what I want to wear in that casket. And she goes, don't talk about that. I said, why not? I know where I'm going. I'm not, that doesn't upset me, but I just want to make myself prepared and you prepared, but don't tell Charles (laughs) (laughs) that I'm doing this. (laughs) During this time, we lost my father-in-law, we lost an uncle, and I couldn't be there. I couldn't be there to support him because I couldn't travel. It was hard, but God was there in the midst of it. Just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, at the end of 2021, I got a rash from here all the way to my feet. I went to a dermatologist. They did a biopsy. They said, well, you now have skin lupus, too. And so that meant... I had to always be covered up when I'm out enjoying the sunshine. Sunshine affects the lupus and makes it worse on the skin. And then I started yet, at the end of 2021, another drug. Many of them were failing because I would react to them. Many of them just didn't work, but we had another drug. Is God still working? Yes. Because he finally leads me to a pain doctor who helps my pain. He leads me to a new GI doctor who specializes in esophagus disorders. He leads me to a dermatologist that I just said understands lupus. In fact, she's the one that realized some of the medications I were taking were actually triggering the lupus. So she calls the other doctors to say, "Hey, stop. You're adding to the problem," you know. So the doctors had to talk to one another. That was a god thing. During this time though in 21, we realized this guy over here needed a break. He was constant caregiver. He did everything because I was so helpless. And God brought my loving sisters in from out of state to take care of me and send him off on a trip to see our son and go fishing and go camping. Later, again, the kids got together, paid for a trip for him to go see his beloved Navy play up in Oklahoma and take a motorcycle ride to get there. God provided those, because he knew those details and what we needed. And it gave us encouragement to both of us. Now it's 2022. Are you getting bored? (laughs) I'm still pretty miserable. But now I know I have enough strength. I'm going to hobble with my little tank to church, back to church, back to Redeemer. I miss you. I need you. I joined a small group and my life's changed so much more even. They spoke encouragement into me. They were mighty mighty prayer warriors. They loved me. It was good. Is God still working? You betcha. I finally get cataract surgery. I had lost I had gotten cataracts for a year and a half because I was on such strong steroids. And so I couldn't read my Bible. I'd listened to a lot of podcasts. I listened to a lot of music so I could hear God's word being sung and being spoken. The doctors wouldn't do the surgery. They said, you have to wait because we feel you are, have no immune system. You will lose your eyesight if anything goes wrong. So you're just going to have to deal with it. But finally, in 2022, I was able to get that surgery. There was enough healing going on that they think I would be okay. And of course, remember I told you at the end of 2021, I started a new medication for the lupus. About four months into 2022, I began to notice a difference. Hey, something's going on here. Something's working. The pain is still there, but not as much. I'm able to move my hands. Walking was very, very difficult. My feet, I could tell a difference in my knees and my back and my neck. Something was going on. But also, I also know the years of physical therapy were working too. I thank God for physical therapists. (laughs) Believe me, they work wonders. But something exciting happened in that year, in 2022. For the first time in four years, we decided we're gonna try it, because I felt a little better. We're gonna do a trip. We're gonna go and see my son in Virginia. Didn't know how it was gonna turn out, what was gonna happen. We packed up that little Honda Civic with nine big old cans of oxygen and a big concentrator that I use at night. We were like a little time bomb driving down that road. But God protected, and God took care of us. And I even went hiking. It took a long time, little by little, but he was by my side. And we went hiking, and I saw nature, and I saw my son and my grandkids that I hadn't seen in a while. And again, God encouraged me, and he kept telling me, I've got you, you're still there. I am your refuge, which is a shelter. He's protecting, he's working. It was awesome. I just like, okay, I can handle this, even with this big old tank trailing beside me. Well, now it's 2023. Okay, I'm gonna really, it's gonna be good year. I just, I just know it. Well, this is how it starts out. I tear my tendon in my left leg, in my left foot, pretty bad. So, tons of physical therapy. I missed Dallas Blooms. I couldn't go because he said no walking. And I'm like, okay, I can get through this. I can get through this. Okay. Well, then I get shingles. And because I have no immune system, it was awful. Like, okay, okay, we'll get through this. And this small group, they're praying their hearts out for me. And then I get COVID. My first time, I had avoided it all this time and I get COVID, but you know what? God took care of me. God took care of me. It was great. He, he just showed up and he was there and he did what he needed to do and he spoke healing into me. But now I gotta tell you the most exciting part of what God did in July of 2023, just not too long ago. My cardiologist had been following me because I have um, an aneurysm in my aorta, which, you know, can be pretty serious. So they are doing another x-ray, it's been a year, to check on it. And he calls me from the office and says, the aneurysm's gone. It's just gone. <laughs> He said, your heart's looking good. We still have a few things that you're going to have to stay under my care. But man, has it improved and gotten stronger. I'm like, praise God. Well, then I'm, I'm noticing something strange. Something's happening. And then I have my pulmonologist appointment a couple weeks ago. And he wa- and this is the person I had told my life group. I said, of all the doctors, I want this man to have a wow moment. I want him to see the power of God. Because this is the man that said, you are permanently on oxygen the rest of your life. Anyway, I'm in that exam room. He walks in, and he actually says, wow! <laughs> and I go, did you see it? He goes, yeah, because the only thing I could understand on that x-ray when it got to the lung part was, no pleural effusions, they're gone. And, but then he tells me the rest, he interprets the rest of the medical jargon. He says, you have lung disease, but it's improved. And he, and I said, what does this mean? I'm, I'm getting excited. He goes, it means we can start to test you to see can you, be off of oxygen. And I said, let's start the test. (laughs) You know, so the daytime test involves keeping a a a very detailed journal of every activity I do and he wanted me to try all kinds of activities without the oxygen and wearing my little finger thing that tells you what your level is and keeping that log. I send it off to him he calls me back after a week, after a week, and he says, you know what, you don't have to have oxygen anymore. <laughs> During the daytime, say goodbye to those tanks. And I'm, I'm just like, all right. And then the next test is the nighttime test, where you, they hook you up to a little machine that records the data, and I'm sleeping without the oxygen and then we take it to a facility that downloads the data and then reports back to him. So a couple days later, I'm waiting, and he calls and he said, well, you're dead really good most of the night, but we have some er times when you didn't, and it dropped down into the 80, 85, a little bit lower. And he said, so that I really want you to stay on that oxygen therapy at night. And you know what, I was like, that's fine that's great I can handle that because I had the freedom to go and do what I wanted during the daytime if I had to come back at night and hook up to the oxygen no big deal you know that, that was no big deal but God met me where I was at and he never left he was my refuge he was my shelter even when i couldn't read scripture even in the beginning when my mind was in a fog i couldn't even think straight i couldn't remember things my poor husband i'm so glad people prayed for him because he needed so much patience and strength and stamina to take care of me and he did and that is a testimony to his faithful love was it easy no did it stress our marriage yes But we were faithful to be obedient and love one another the way Christ wanted us to love one another. It's exciting. I feel like a new woman. Oh, and I started driving. I hadn't driven for four years because of all the problems and medication problems and vision problems and strength problems. And I started driving again, which he was like jumping up and down. You know. So we were just praising God these last couple of weeks. You know, you've, some of you have seen me come to church without the tank. You may have wondered what's going on. I told a few people, but I wanted to tell the congregation as a whole because it's important to testify to the greatness of God, to the goodness of God, even in the midst Am I healed totally? No, God didn't choose to do that. He chose to heal in certain areas. But God can do what he wants, and I trust him. Paul had a thorn in his flesh the entire time he lived and was testifying for Jesus Christ. And he even died a martyr with that still there. I want to testify. I want to live for him. God had not put me on a shelf. I thought he did when I got discouraged. I thought the enemy was telling me, you are no value. I'm not going to use, they're not going to use you. Look at you. You can't even hardly walk or stand up or talk. And I decided, no, no, I am not going to believe it. God gave me gifts. He will use me in his time. This is a season in my life that he was growing me, even spiritually deeper than I've ever grown before, to learn what true surrender is. Part of me still wanted that control in my life. Even when I thought I was dying, I thought, oh, I can't die. What will happen to my grandkids who don't know you yet? What will happen to this? What will happen to that? And God's like, really? really? I go, he had to bring me to the point of realizing he's in control and all of this is for his glory, not mine. I didn't ask why, because why not me? He died and suffered for me, he loved me that much, and he loves you that much, each of you, and I thank you so much for each one's contribution, your prayers, your encouragement. I have a box full of notes from people in our different pastors, where Charles pastored, of people in this community that sent me notes of encouragement and telling me they were praying for me. They were a lifeline when you are cut off from people. And I want to leave you with another verse and then I want to pray for you as I close you know I told you music was a big important part of my my theme song during this time I played it over and over and over again my husband probably got sick of it mercy me have a song, has a song called even if and I'm only going to share this one line I know you are able and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand and even if you don't my hope is in you alone and it is still and now i want to read with you god's word therefore having been justified by faith we are at peace with god through the lord jesus christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into grace in which we stand we exalt in the hope of the glory of god and not only this but we also exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because of the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Let me pray for you, my brothers and my sisters. Father, I stand before you so grateful to you, so grateful for these people. I pray now for my brothers and sisters. I know there's someone out there who's physically ill and needs healing. I know there are people out there with broken hearts. I know there are hurt relationships out there. I know there's distress. I know there's mental anguish. But you are our hope we can put our hope our trust in you and I pray that you will help these brothers and sisters that are struggling with their trials to give them that hope, that confidence in you, that they will cry out against the enemy, no you don't God is working God will prevail God will answer It may be hard, it may get really hard, but he is there, and he loves us, and he cares about every single detail. And so I pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, that you will bless them tremendously, that you will bless this church, that we will have hope in knowing that we are here because you want us to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, your son. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your glory. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name, amen.
2: All right, I get to follow that. Uh, Do we need a sermon? Probably should give Bethany a hand, too, for being up here and not bawling her eyes out while listening to that. So. Alright, for those that don't know me, my name is Stanley. Uh, I serve as an elder here uh, at Redeemer. And so, um, if we haven't met, uh, I'm so glad that you're here and chosen to worship with us. If, um, if you're new here, uh, we have one of these guest cards probably in a, on a chair close to you. Or uh, you can scan the QR code in front of one of the chairs. Uh, that will take you to a form, uh, online form, uh, that looks like this. And we would love to, you know, if you leave your information, give you more information about Redeemer and contact you if you have any needs. Uh, And also on the back, if there's prayer requests, things that we can pray with you or for you, we'll be happy to uh, do that if you can uh, put your prayer request on there and drop it in the kiosk uh, in the back. I think that covers the logistics uh, for this morning. Uh, Kids... Stay with us this morning. Uh, given it's the third Sunday, and so um, it's going to be a little bit noisy, uh, but I'm fine with it, and so don't y'all can be fine with it too, and we'll just roll with it, okay? Um, all right. So we um, we're in a series, or we've been in a series called uh, Indestructible, where we are looking at this idea of hope in the Bible, and what hope uh, looks like in these different characters or um, in these different books of the Bible and different characters in these books and kind of learning from them of what it means to be a hopeful people. And the, the idea is, as I think I shared the first week, uh, is that we as a church will become a people of hope. I mean, uh, listening to Judy's uh, story, I think you just hear this theme of hope and uh, this expectation of goodness from God, even when you don't see it, even when the circumstances um, don't um, Uh, show any signs uh, or any reasons to hope. And so um, I think this is what we're uh, hoping to accomplish. And today uh, we uh, are in the book of Ruth and looking at how Ruth as a story um, teaches us about hope and what the theme of hope looks like in this book. Well, before we uh, kind of do that, I I just want to show you a couple of pictures here in the back. And um, I can't see it in the back, so I'm going to look, uh, look up back here um, I want y'all to guess what this is. This is, by the way, just for some context, it is a picture of something that's under an electro- electron microscope, and it's magnified about 800%. Uh, can you guess what, a, what it is? Shout it out, I mean. Skin? No. It's a blueberry. It's the, it's the sulfur, surface of a blueberry. Well, for those that are blueberry lovers, uh, the next one here. I have a few more here. Uh, leaf, yeah, it's it's spinach, it's spinach. That's why I don't eat spinach because it looks like this. <laughs> All right, the next next uh, the next picture, flea. Now it's a foot of a wasp, magnified eight hundred percent, or I think it's a thousand percent. That's what it looks like. Okay, last one. Any guesses? Yeah, it's eye of a butterfly actually, and if you look at the actual butterfly in the next picture, you can see it's that uh, the eye of it. I mean, why am I showing these gross pictures? I showed it to Ezra, and Ezra's like, "What is this?" Um, uh, hopefully, all kids will sleep well tonight. But <laughs> but uh, the idea of showing these pictures is, I think, Ruth kind of portrays a similar idea for us, and I think. It was, it was apt as I was thinking about and studying and preparing for to teach the book of Ruth is oftentimes when we live our lives, we are so in the details, right? We are so close to uh, the conversations that we have, the waking up and the changing of diapers and uh, arguments and pick up and drop off and work and, you know, um, cooking and cleaning, etc. And oftentimes, we live our lives in this magnified uh, version, and oftentimes we, are, we lose the perspective on what does this all mean for my life as a believer? What is God doing in my ordinary everyday life? As I am cooking and cleaning and parenting and working and lawn, uh, mowing my lawn, whatever it is that we're doing, how is it that God is present with us? And so the story of Ruth uh, is one of these short stories, and it's only four chapters, um, and it tells us the story of a woman named Naomi, her daughter-in-law Ruth, and an Israelite farmer named Boaz, and it invites us to reflect on how God is involved in our day-to-day lives, our day-to-day joys, our day-to-day hardships, um, and how he is involved in the mundane uh, aspects of our life, and so that's uh, what Ruth is uh, um, at a 30,000-foot at a view, and so for our um, passage today, I want to read um, Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So, I mean, Ruth is a short book, so if you f- I, I would encourage you this week to just spend some time. It takes, I think, 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes to read through it. I'm not going to read all of it, but <clears throat> I want to start uh, start at the, back, uh, at the end of uh, Ruth chapter 4, and then we'll work our way back to this from the beginning. But I just want to read this so you have a context of uh, where we're going to end up. So, Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day, without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, put a pin on that, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David." So most of us have probably heard about Ruth or heard about the different, uh, probably attended a Bible study about Ruth, and there's all these common themes that often arises. Uh, we see about Ruth's loyalty, the Hesed love of the kinsman redeemer, the, con- the theme of uh, the kinsman redeemer. And so there's a lot of different themes that we see, but I, I want to spend some time looking at uh, the theme of hope uh, in this book. And so, uh, like I said, We'll end up in Chapter Four, but I want us to, to make a couple of pit stops before we get there. and for our first pit stop, I want to look at chapter One and verse one and look at um, the context or historical context of Ruth um, as this book is written. And again, I don't have all these verses up on the screen. It uh, was a lot of verses, and I don't want Bobby to keep me clicking, but so you just follow along with in your Bible uh, as, as I read this, but in in Ruth chapter one, verse one, it says, "In the days." When the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The ma- name of this man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Mahalon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. And so in this first couple of lines, the writer of this book of Ruth, the narrator, is giving us a little bit of context about where Ruth is situated. As you can imagine, uh, you know, when, when the early readers of Ruth, they didn't have a Bible that was bound like this, and so the writers uh, oftentimes gave us clues on what connections we need to make as we were reading this book. This is how they uh, essentially made hyperlinks between the different books of the Bible. And so, uh, the book of when you re, I want to highlight a couple of things in these first two verses for us to get some context. And so the first is that this was the day of the judges, the day that the judges were ruling. And so if you missed that, as the sermon last week, Keith talked a little bit about this, what was happening in Israel during this time. He talked about the story of Gideon. So if you missed that or need a refresher, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. I think he did a good job of explaining that. But the 30,000-foot view of what needs to come to mind when we read this word, in the days when the judges ruled, is easy. We just need to flip a page over, and when you flip a page over, you are in the book of Judges, and the book of Judges chapter 21, and verse 25, the last verse of that book, it ends this way. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and so This is the first thing that needs to come to mind as we read this first sentence in the book of Ruth that the time of the judges was a chaotic time in the land of Israel. It was a dark time. It was filled with uh, the nations around them raiding them. They were in constant wars. There was famine. There was idol worship all over the place. God raised these godly people like Samson and Gideon to uh, confront the people and convict them. But Uh, They oftentimes returned back to their sin, and they essentially discarded God and put Him back in the back burner, and sin was rampant. This is what we are to kind of know or keep in the back of our mind as we read the book of Ruth. The second, I think, interesting uh, part of these two verses was we hear that there is a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Now, that is ironic because Bethlehem is or stands for the house of bread. And so for there to be a famine in the house of bread, no bread in the house of bread, is an ironic fact. The writer is, again, trying to clue us into what was happening here. I remember traveling uh, when I was on one of my work trips, uh, going to one of these ice cream shops. I can't remember exactly what it was. I wanna say it was like Dairy Queen or Baskin Robbins or one of these places. It was open, there was employees there. So we show up, I show up there uh, with my coworkers to get ice cream and they just like, we don't have ice cream. And I was like, okay, well, that's a little bit odd. Like, what are you selling? I mean, like, why are you open? Why are there employees here? <laughs> what, what exactly are you selling? Well, it's probably how it felt. It was, it was kind of a weird, weird experience. But it's just probably what we should feel like when we read that there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Because in the land of bread, there was no bread to be found. And lastly, we read about this family uh, this man named Elimelech and his wife and his two children, they leave to go to Moab. In uh, Elimelech, uh, his name means, my God is king. So the guy or the man whose name is my God is king leaves Israel when there's no king in Judah to go down to Moab. And the Moabites, again, when you think of Moabites, it should clue you into not friendly to Israel not the kinds of people that Israel want to be associated with. They were essentially the descendants of the people of Sodom. And so these are not the kinds of people that Israel wants to be uh, associated with. This is not somebody you would go to for help. But this is where Elimelech finds his family trying to escape the famine in Bethlehem, and we find ourselves uh, in, this, uh, in this time. And so as they make this journey, a um, few years into it, Elimelech dies, His two sons, Mahalon and Kilion, take Moabite wives, uh, Orpah and Ruth, but then they die too, and leaving just uh, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law to live. And so these three widows now have to make some choices on how they're going to survive life in a patriarchal society without any form of work, income, security, or any type of protection. And so Naomi, with no, really no reason to stay, uh, decides she's moving back home. Uh, and she tries to convince her daughters-in-law to stay in their land. I mean, she knows the life of a foreign widow in Israel is not going to be pleasant. She, know that she, she knows that nobody's going to marry them in Israel because they're Moabites. She knows that uh, they're not going to be able to work or find work, and so life is going to be hard. So she, she compels them to stay in Moab, to go back to their people and their gods. And uh, Orpah listens to her and decides to do that. And, uh, Ruth, on the other hand, is, uh, decides that she is actually going to be committed to Ruth and decides to make her way back to Bethlehem with Naomi. And so as we see these two women make their way back, I think it sets up a case study for us to... Keep an eye on, or understand what hope looks like when tragedy hits. What hope looks like when tragedy hits. Now remember, I think we've talked about hope. It's been defined a couple of times. But if you've forgotten, um, hope is the hope in God is the anticipation or the expectation of goodness from God. It's the anticipation or expectation of goodness from God, and it's the attitude that we live in as believers, where we expect goodness from God irrespective of the circumstances we live in, irrespective of what is happening around us. So let's look at these two characters in contrast, uh, as we look at these two um, women and kind of contrast their responses to tragedy. I think something that jumped out to me as I looked at these two, uh, as I studied this book and looked at these two characters, I think we see that Naomi is a picture of somebody who loses hope in the midst of tragedy. Can't blame her, it's a difficult situation, but she is a picture of somebody who's lost hope when tragedy hits. And Ruth, on the other hand, is a picture of somebody who decides to hope in God when tragedy hits. And I think this is an important distinction as we look at how they respond to their life circumstances and how they respond and how they uh, behave as the story kind of develops. So it brings me to my first point this morning, and that is that worry and hope are in competition to shape our outlook of life. Worry and hope are in competition to shape our outlook on life. I think this, um, as we kind of look at this story and kind of spend some time looking at Naomi, I mean, think about where she's at. Uh, She leaves uh, Israel with uh, with a family, a husband and two sons. She's prospering. She... She's able to find uh, food and um, uh, provisions in Moab. But fast forward about 10 or 20 years later, she's completely devastated. She's a widow, no source of income, no sense of protection, no land to work on, nobody to support her. And she finds herself completely hopeless, in a hopeless situation. In verse uh, 6, and I want to read that, she hears that God has now blessed Bethlehem with food. And so she decides to cut her losses and go back home. It's like, I don't have anything to offer here. There's nothing here for me, so I'm going to go back home. She also, she not only decides to cut cut her losses, but she also decides to end her relationship with these two daughters-in-law that have been with her. These were her closest relationships, as we can tell. She sees her future as being uh, full of poverty and uh, fruitlessness, and she doesn't think theirs is going to be any better. So not only does she not have hope, her hopelessness kind of seeps into her relationships, her closest relationships as she tries to convince her daughters-in-law who are Moabites to stay in their land, to stay with their gods instead of coming and being part of Yahweh's family. And she tells Orpah and Ruth, I can't have any sons or that you're going to be able to marry, so stay here, go back to your people, go back to your gods. This is the state that we find Naomi in, worry, and fear has kind of taken on in her life, has taken root in her life. And on top of that, her outlook being hopeless, her relationships being torn apart, she believes that God is punishing her, uh, and that that God has abandoned her. I think it's, uh, let's look at verses 19 in chapter 1 again, and we'll read through the end of uh, chapter 1. It says, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. They came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. It had been 20 years since they had seen her, so he said, and the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Naomi is responding to the crowds that meets her in Bethlehem and says, don't call me Naomi, which by the way, Naomi means pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Bitter. bitter. She's called me, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me, so call me bitter. This is somebody, it's a picture of somebody who's lost hope. But we have a benefit as readers of the book of Ruth to see Naomi's picture in a zoomed out view. We don't have to stare in to the eye of the the foot of the wasp or the eye of the butterfly. We get a zoomed out view. We get to see the whole butterfly. Was Naomi completely empty when she came? Did she come back empty-handed? She felt that way in reality, but was she? As readers, we get to see what she came back with. What are some of the things that we see here that she's come back with? One, she has a daughter-in-law with her. I mean, I'm not sure what Ruth felt when uh, she, Naomi said, I don't have anything, I'm empty. just like, well, I'm here. <laughs> Naomi was blind to that. And this is an important fact. I don't think it is, uh, I say that in jest, but it's an important uh, uh, part of the story, because remember I asked you to put a pin in chapter 4, because how is Ruth described to Naomi by the people in the town? That she is better than seven sons. In a culture, the the idea of seven sons indicates a perfect family. When you have seven, it's a a number of perfection, and sons indicated a, a fruitful family, and so seven sons indicated that you had a perfect family. And so Ruth is being described as somebody being better than having a perfect family. But Naomi, She's not picking up on the clues. She's completely wrapped up in her situation and her tragedy. She has no hope. Worry has captured her heart. The second thing, Naomi is unaware of what's happening in Bethlehem. We read, or the, the narrator tells us that they, they come in at a very uh, interesting time of the year. They come in right as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, I mean, can you imagine the scenes she walked? away from Bethlehem, and it was empty, the fields were empty. She's coming back to Bethlehem with the fields full of barley, probably the hustle and bustle of harvest season, people coming into work, the fields are full, but Naomi's not picking up the clues. She is completely blind to what God is doing. I think this is essentially what worry does for us, doesn't it? Or you can say this is what a lack of hope does for us. It sucks out the joy, and it blinds us to what God is doing in our lives, the lives of our families, and the lives of our communities. And this is an important uh, uh, point that we see in Naomi's life. What about Ruth? What do we see Ruth about Ruth in contrast? How's Ruth different from Naomi? I'm gonna kind of point out a few things and kind of skip the verses here, but look at Ni- uh, uh, Ruth's uh, response in contrast to ruth uh, sorry in con- contrast to naomi ruth doesn't cut her losses i mean she also experiences tragedy right she loses her husband without any children she's a foreign woman in a land um, that hates her or is not fond of her at least but she doubles down on her commitment to yahweh she probably learned about yahweh from naomi and her family But when tragedy hits, she doubles down on that commitment. She says, I want to give up my identity as a Moabite woman and be part of Yahweh's family. And We read this in this this very popular passage that you probably read in uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and below, where it says, I will not leave you. I will go where you go. I will lodge where your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth chooses hope in the midst of her tragic life circumstances, unlike Naomi. So as these both women experience tragedy that make them widows, Naomi succumbs to fear and hopelessness, while Ruth chooses hope in Yahweh. So it's two very different responses to tragedy. Now, this is not just a peripheral point, I think it's an important aspect of how their stories will develop as we read uh, the rest of it. Because Naomi returns to Bethlehem and is missing what God is doing. She thinks God's against her, that God's punishing her. Ruth, on the other hand, is hopeful. She's expecting good things. And we see that as you jump to chapter 2. Which brings me to our second point. Hope fuels our trust and actions. Hope fuels our trust and actions. Look at what Ruth uh, does in chapter 2. As soon as she's in, she recognizes that it's a barley harvest. She says, she asked Naomi, let me go to the field, verses 2 of chapter 2. says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi says, go, my daughter. So Ruth is up and looking for provision and favor. Now, for one, she has to feed herself and Naomi, so that is understandable. But she's expecting to find favor in a foreign land as a foreigner. She believes, and I believe that this—her hope in the goodness of God—is what fueled this action. And come to find out, God orchestrates a meeting between Boaz and Ruth while she's busy at work. So Boaz comes to the fields where Ruth is gleaning and asks about her, inquires about her from his workers. Now, this is can seem uh, seems like a coincidence. But I think it, this was God orchestrated. If you look at uh, the circumstances, like Boaz is a farmer; he probably has multiple fields. He probably has acres and acres of barley farms. There's hundreds of workers in these farms, in these fields. It's you know, it's not one of these zero lots that I ha, like my backyard uh, in the suburbs, right? These are large fields and full of uh, uh, barley and lots of workers. And so, Ruth gleaning. Uh, which is a provision that was made for foreigners in the land of Israel because they didn't own land, um, would have been just any other person picking up what the harvesters left behind. And she was not allowed to um, uh, harvest, but she was allowed to glean. Boaz recognizes or she finds favor in the eyes of Boaz, and Boaz invites her to not only just glean, but to harvest with his harvesters. He also goes on to give her provisions um, of food and also protection, as this was not a safe environment for women to be. And so if you look at chapter 10, or verse 12, and I'm going to skip this for the sake of time, but Ruth asks Boaz in verses 10 and 12, if you're taking notes in chapter 2, says, why have I found favor since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz says, all you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Boaz, uh, uh, sorry, and I want to read 12 too. It says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz recognizes that Ruth and her conversion and commitment that she made to her mother-in-law was a conversion experience where she gave up her Moabite identity to be a part of Israel. And this, this commitment that she's made to Yahweh, I believed, fueled her hope. This is what I believe fueled her loyal action. And this is, and this is what Boaz says, that, she sh- that, she would be, that the Lord repay her for this commitment and this faithfulness that she's made because she's found refuge in Yahweh. Now, this is probably something we've all experienced in our lives, haven't we, right? When we're excited about something, we m- make commitments to it. We invest in it, right? Um, students, if we are excited about the future. Go to college, invest a lot of money to go to college and uh, get a job that will pay your bills. Uh, if you're inv- if you're wanting to start a marriage, you invest in that and uh, uh, get married. If you want your marriage to thrive and you believe in it, you invest in it. You believe we invest in our kids because we believe they have a future. We believe in these things or we, when we have a hope for the future of these things that we're involved in, we want to invest in more. This is true of our, um, our jobs, our communities, our homes, our churches. When you believe and you, you have hope for its future and you expect good things to come, you invest time and energy and resources towards it. This is also true, though, for our spiritual lives. And oftentimes, I wonder if some of us who have become apathetic in our faith have lost this hope, and thus we have stopped investing time and energy into our spiritual lives. How is that looking for each of you this morning? Are you investing time and energy towards growing spiritually? That's time in scriptures or prayer or in community or serving. What does it look like? Are we doing just the bare minimum to get by, just to show we've checked the boxes? Or is there a commitment to invest? Is there a, a faithfulness in how we undertake those aspects? I think it comes, uh, applies to us as a church. Do we have hope in what God is doing here at Redeemer? Are we willing to invest time and energy and resources into it? Or are we, again, doing the bare minimum Checking the boxes, getting the goods, but really want to do just enough to get by. If you find yourself there, and I think it is a sign that you have lost hope in what God is doing, and not only in your life, the life of a family, but in the life of this church. And if you find yourself there, I want to call you to repentance. Reflect on it. Do Do we need to repent of that? Have we been holding back when it comes to the kingdom? Have our personal priorities taken, uh, personal agenda taken priority over what God is doing here and God is doing in your own life? Because again, hope fuels action. It fuels trust, and so when there's no action and there's no trust, you have to question what is missing. Some of us may have had bad experiences at the church. The church may have broken your trust, may have been a tragedy. It's not unheard of. But if you're there, can I ask you to surrender those hurts to, to the Holy Spirit? Ask Him to do a work of healing in your life. Because unlike Naomi, we don't have to allow those fear and those worries to dictate our lives or to influence our decisions. We can take a, a position of hope. Students, for the, the, in the room is applicable to you, too. What is influencing your own decisions and actions? Is it fitting in, not fitting in, looking cool, not looking cool? Is it rebellion? Is it fear? Is it uncertainty? What's fueling your decisions? What's fueling your actions this morning? Today's a good day to repent from apathy and surrender To God, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with hope, so you are aware of what God is doing, and you can expect that from God. Because if you lack hope, like Naomi did, then the way to grow in hope is to act in faith. If you lack hope, and the way to grow in hope is to act in faith, which brings me to the next uh, third point this morning. And that is hope grows when we act in faith. And repentance is one of those acts. Remember Naomi? The one that was bitter and she wanted to be called Mara and she's hopeless. Well, things change when Ruth comes home after meeting Boaz. She shows up with way more abundant grain than somebody would have been able to do from just a session of gleaning. She comes home with this abundant grain and food and provisions and uh, Naomi doesn't even know where she got all this, but she says, bless whoever, uh, whosoever field you found favor in. But then she finds out it's Boaz's field. And I think something turns in the story for Naomi herself. She suddenly recognizes that God has actually been working behind the scenes. God is not trying to punish her, but God is trying to redeem her story. And wrote, uh, she recognizes that Ruth and Boaz's interaction out in the fields was not coincidental. She is able to get out of that narrow view of worry, and she begins to hope again. She recognizes because Boaz is actually a kinsman redeemer to Elimelech's family. Now, just a summary of what a kinsman redeemer is: it is a um, um, it was part of the Jewish law, and you can read more about this in Leviticus. Chapter 25, you know, bedtime reading. You can read about this, and uh, it talks about the idea here was because only the men could own land, God had made this provision for uh, families whose husbands died or sons died to be taken care of. He didn't want people to be left out, and so if a man or a husband died and left behind a family, it was the Redeemer's responsibility, oftentimes a close relative or a family member, to marry the widow and protect the family. And this was allowed so that the dead man's lineage could continue, that family could continue. And this idea of kids of redeemer has a lot of themes and we think about Jesus as our own redeemer and it's a study in itself. I won't go down that uh, rabbit hole, but I uh, want to just kind of put a pin on that and just talk about how that's important in the story. Because when R- Naomi hears about, Bo- uh, about Boaz from Ruth, she begins to hope that perhaps there's still a future for her family. Maybe God still has a plan for her. because see what she does. Not only does Naomi begin to hope because of Ruth's act of faith, she begins to start acting herself. Remember, what happens when you have hope? Hope fuels trust and action. As Naomi's hope changes, she begins to act. Uh, In chapter 3, we find ourselves, uh, Naomi advises her daughter-in-law, hey, change your clothes, anoint yourself, put on new clothes, and go talk to Boaz. And uh, uh, Ruth w- uh, would have been wearing uh, more clothes of mourning, essentially because she was a widow. So this is her kind of uh, putting on clothes, indicating to the public that she's now available for marriage. And so on uh, Naomi's advice, she, uh, she decides to approach um, Boaz um, to care for them, and so we have these, um, the the sketchy threshing floor scene. Uh, won't go into the details, but you you can read it for yourself. Uh, just just know it wasn't a sleepover like we think about it. But this is her um, Ruth acting in, in hope, uh, and asking Boaz to accept her uh, Ruth as his wife and to care for her and Naomi. So this is the this is what she is doing in that uh, in that passage in in in. Um, Ruth chapter 3. Boaz is startled and is taken, overtaken by her, her kindness, that she would pick him over the young man, as, as he says in the, in the, in the passage. So no, not only does Ruth's faith or hopeful action change Naomi, it changes Boaz's trajectory as a farmer. He's in the middle of harvest season. Now he's planning a wedding. And Boaz's trajectory changes too as he interacts with Ruth. Isn't that awesome? And see how that makes a ripple effect. That brings me to the fourth point this morning. We're almost there. And that is that hope helps us trade our agenda for God's agenda. What do I mean by this? Again, Ruth's, uh, the whole book of Ruth has about 85 verses, so I feel like everything that's included in it is probably somewhat important. There's so much imagery in here, but the one story that is interesting uh, uh, that I think uh, I want to just kind of spend a few minutes looking at it, I would have liked to read uh, Ruth chapter 4, verses 3 to 6, this is, um, but I'm just going to summarize it for us. As Boaz begins the proceedings to marry Ruth, he finds out that there's actually a closer relative to uh, Elimelech's family and Naomi. And so he goes to this uh, closer relative and says, hey, they need to be redeemed. Would you like it to redeem them? And he was like, yep, I'll take the land and I'll take, you know, uh, do whatever is needed. But it's like, oh, actually, there's also this Moabite wife of one of the sons that you would have to marry. Uh, he was not a- about that life. He didn't, uh, Israel, as an Israelite, he didn't want a uh, Moabite in his family. He didn't want to marry a Moabite. He didn't want kids with Moabite. And so uh, we read at the end of chapter, oh, sorry, uh, in, the, um, in chapter 3, verses 6, he says, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 6, he says, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. The close relative is excited about getting the land and the financial impacts of being a kinsman redeemer, but he didn't want all the relationships that came with it. He was like, I'm out. His reason was he didn't want to impair his own inheritance. He tells that he's not, which essentially tells us that this relative was acting as the kinsman redeemer, not for the right reasons. Because remember, the kinsman redeemer was put in place to care for the uh, f- uh, for a family that was in need, to, to, to continue this lineage of the, of the family whose uh, husband had died. But he's not interested in any of that. He's about his own agenda, which is to grow his own wealth. I think this is something, uh, an important point here, uh, because as Christians, we oftentimes have our own agendas in our, own, in our lives, don't we? for our, we have agendas for our lives, for our marriages, for our kids, for our church, for our life group, and oftentimes they are not in line with what God has in mind for us. They oftentimes are competing, and as believers, I think we must be, have enough hope and trust that God has our best interests in mind, that God knows what he's up to, and he will redeem whatever circumstances we find ourselves in without us jumping in the middle of it and trying to thwart his plan. I think that's an important uh, aspect for us as Christians. And we've all been, unfortunately, heard or been part of church splits or families that have been split because people can't give up their own agenda for what God is doing in their lives or what God is doing in churches or what God is doing in a life group. And I think as believers, we need to have enough hope to trust that God is in control and that he will redeem. Now, again, as as readers of Ruth, we have Perspective, we can see the whole butterfly, can we not? Because what's the name of this close relative? There's six verses or so, four verses dedicated to his um, wanting the inheritance and rejecting it, but he didn't want to impair his inheritance. And guess what? Nobody knows he, who he is. He misses out on the opportunity to be part of the lineage that would have brought about King David and Jesus eventually because he was so focused on his inheritance, his agenda, his, his uh, plan, without, while ignoring what God was up to and what God was redeeming. Boaz, on the other hand, he knows Ruth's true character, so he acquires the family property of Naomi's husband and Mary's Ruth. And just as Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, Boaz responds in kind and is loyal to their family. And Boaz and Ruth become God's, part of God's plan to redeem Israel and eventually the whole world. That brings us to the last point, and that is that hope gives us strength to wait for God's gifts and His timing. We see as the story ends um, that hope gives us the strength to be patient. It allows us to wait for God's timing and for God's gifts. We see here that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz could all have taken shortcuts, but we see that they patiently wait for God to work out His plan. Not perfectly; they were bitter, they were—they had their own uh, baggage to deal with. But we see that God's eventually working out to restore them. What began with the sad story of Naomi losing all her um, family and the tragedies in their lives—the end of chapter, uh, end of Ruth concludes with a total reversal of all of those tragedies. We see that the deaths of the sons and husbands are reversed as Ruth is now married again to Boaz and has a son, granting joy to her and Naomi. Naomi is no longer considered barren because she has a grandson and, uh, and she has a redeemer or somebody to care for her and somebody to carry her name, her family name. And it's not just any son, right? We just read about this, is, this would be she would, uh, this son would be the grandfather of King David. And Naomi and Ruth and Boaz become part of this family lineage that would eventually give us Jesus, but also would give us this king that the judges ended, the book ended with by saying that there was no king. Their lineage would eventually give the king that would unite Israel, that eventually would unite us to the Father. patience is only possible if we have hope. The only way we can stay faithful and on course in our ordinary lives is for us to have hope and have the strength to wait. So let us continue in this hope, because uh, in God, because it will give us the strength to persevere. Now, finally, as the band comes up, and I think it's worth mentioning that Ruth actually oddly ends with a genealogy. I'm not sure what it is with the books, the sermons I preach, and genealogies, but here we find ourselves another genealogy. Um, I'm not sure if you count it, and I won't read it, but how many families are represented, or how many generations are represented in that genealogy? It's about 10. And I think we talked about this 10 number appearing multiple times. We see 10 gen- generations from Adam to Noah, which begins a new beginning. We see 10 generations from uh, Noah to Abraham, another new beginning. Now we see here 10 generations to David, and another new beginning. And so as the, end, as the book of Ruth ends we see that God is not done with this uh, plan, but rather that he's incorporating this family and their story into the larger plan as he works out Israel's future, but also our own future. So that's the book of Ruth. Two widows and a farmer, and their hope and worry-filled decisions made in a small town in Israel have these huge ramifications. And I think that's true for our own lives. As we parent and we're in the middle and zoomed into the details of everyday life, we wonder, does this matter? What is God doing? How is God redeeming? Is God gonna use this? I think this the story of Ruth should instill in us. That's just what the, re, uh, the story is inviting us to do, is to reflect that God is working to redeem all aspects of our own lives. While we may not see, we may not have the benefit of reading a book like the book of Ruth, but our own stories, at least yet, we can trust that God is working. We can trust that God is in the business of redeeming. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for the book of Ruth and the story mentioned about this random family in the town of Bethlehem and their decisions and The way they have, they live out faithfully what they know to be true. Oftentimes with hope, but oftentimes with worry. Thank you for making this story available to us so that we may reflect on our own lives as we go about our daily lives. Going to our jobs and our classes and our life groups and sports and activities and community activities, and church, and life group, whatever the activities we find ourselves in, help us to recognize the value in it. Help us to continue to be faithful in the mundane, ordinary details of our lives, because we know that if we have hope, and as hopeful believers, we can trust that you are working all these things, and redeeming all these things, that we can expect goodness from you, and we can anticipate goodness from you, irrespective of what the circumstances are currently. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to move into a, a time of communion um, as we partake in the Lord's Supper. This is Redeemer that I just talked about. And Jesus came so that we may be reconciled. He died for us, that we may be reconciled to His Father so we can call Him our Father. So if this is you this morning and you have given your life to Jesus and call him Lord and Savior I would like to invite you to partake with us in this Lord's Supper if you have not given your life to Jesus I would love to talk to you and pray with you in the back so please uh, see me after service but I would encourage you to wa- stay and observe and would love for you to participate with us in the future but if you're planning to partake with us as the band sings a song Please come and take the elements and participate with us. And as we prepare our hearts, I want us to read these words for our meditation. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes
0: Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.